Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Katoa. Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. And this is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and other academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. How are things for you? This is episode number 26, recorded in June 2021, and today I talk with Dr. Claire Minton. Claire is a registered nurse from Palmerston North here in New Zealand and a senior lecturer in the School of Nursing, Massey University. Claire's research platform includes the trajectory of a prolonged critical illness, patients and family experiences, fundamentals of care within the acute care context, particularly the ICU environment, the impact of the acute care environment on patients' experiences and students' experiences within the clinical environment. Central to Claire's research portfolio is a concern for patients and their families' experiences of a critical illness, and particularly when the illness is prolonged. She is a strong advocate of fundamentals of care framework being the platform for all other care and through research and teaching understands the importance of this being embedded in all aspects of nursing practice. She's also a member of the International Learning Collaborative, a network bringing people together to improve the delivery of fundamental care in health systems. In this episode, we talk about how long-term patients are not the same as other patients the importance of having a plan, a plan that is different for them when compared to other patients, the importance of celebrating goals, giving patients time out, and finding out who our patients are and what is actually important to them. Also, we discuss the importance and experience of family, their uncertainty, the disruption, the never knowing what might happen, and the ever-present fear of death and how often they instinctively know that something is wrong. So, grab a cuppa, sit back, and have a listen to the interview with Claire Minton. Right, so Claire, um, lovely to have you with us today on the podcast. Thank you so much. No worries. And um, you're based down in Palmerston North in New yep. Zealand. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, how did you get into nursing? Yeah, so nursing, I always just knew I wanted to be a nurse as a child. My mother was a nurse and told me I'd be a good nurse and so left school and went nursing uh, at Manawatu Polytech in the late 80s. So um, I, when I actually finished my nursing training in New Zealand, there were um, it was the time of the big uh, health reforms with uh, the national government, and, and a lot of nurses were losing their jobs, um, or there were no jobs in nursing. So I actually went to Australia when I finished my uh, nursing degree, and um, got a job in Australia. So the first I worked um, first at the Gold Coast Hospital, actually, 
because uh, my father also lived there. So that's how I ended up over there. So I worked for the first six months or year or so it was in a busy surgical ward that, um, where they had all the abdominal surgeries and a few head injury, post-head injury patients and things. Anyway, one day I came to work and uh, my name wasn't on the roster. And I said, oh, what's happened to my name? And uh, they said, oh, they must have decided to move you somewhere else in the hospital. Go have a look in the master sheet. So off I tottled to have a look at the master sheet, which I didn't even know existed, um, outside some matron's office and found that they'd moved me to intensive care, which I was um, like, oh my goodness, I don't think I can go there. I was absolutely petrified. Anyway, off I went to intensive care and, um, uh, you know, within being there a couple of days, were looking after a ventilated patient all by myself with uh, the person next door to me keeping an eye and... Um, yeah, but I uh, really enjoyed the work and uh, learned heaps. They had a, a really good educator there who, um, you know, we have education sessions and a bit of an orientation program and things. So uh, next thing you know, I was, uh, you know, in full swing uh, doing an intensive, working as an intensive care nurse. Um, and they had their own hospital-based intensive care course, which uh, I did. So I worked there for about three years and then went with a group of friends, went travelling and uh, did agency work and things in England and uh, also did a locum, went to Saudi Arabia and worked in um, intensive care there. Then when I came back to England, uh, did a bit more locum work and decided that I was sick of doing agency work. So I actually got a job at the... Uh, Royal Brompton National Heart and Lung Hospital, where um, I worked for a year or so uh, on the cardiac ward, um, you know, post uh, cardiac ICU ward with the uh, patients who had the coronary artery grafts and uh, things like that. So that was really interesting. And also, you know, the patients waiting for um, transplants and things. So uh, that was a really interesting side of nursing that I'd never seen because um, working at the Gold Coast Hospital, you know, you'd often have the head injury patients who would end up brain dead and be the organ donors, but I'd never seen the other side of patients waiting to mm. you know, get organs and things. So that was an um, interesting experience for me, you know, remembering patients that, uh, you know, get um, a patient with um, oh, cystic fibrosis, you know, and waiting for them to get a lung transplant eh, on a ventilator mm. and things, which they didn't actually get, but, you know, so there was an interesting uh, side to see, um, you know, the patients that didn't get the transplants because nothing ever came through, but also the ones that did. So that was mm -hmm. good. So I worked there for a while and then ended up back in Australia for a short period of time working again. And then um, I got the call to come home, really, feeling a bit um, homesick for New Zealand. So I came back to New Zealand after I'd been gone for eight years out of um, since I finished my training. So I came back and actually came back to Palmerston North, which was my hometown, and worked in Palmerston North Intensive Care, which was quite um, an, an unusual thing, coming back to a small ICU after I'd been working in these uh, really big intensive care units. And I found it quite hard to settle for a while, but um, found that small intensive care units actually have different things compared to the big ones. Um, there was a lot of, you know, you're able to do that continuation of care. Uh, you know, there would be five patients in the unit, so everyone knew all the patients and knew all the families and things, so I really got to, um, you know, understand the patients and their family needs and things. So, um, and you always went back to the same bed space there, which was something I'd never experienced as an ICU nurse. So you'd come to work and the shift um, 
nurse would allocate you to a bed space and off you'd go. And it was often done on skill mix, never um, really on continuation of care. So um, probably for the first time in my eight years of intensive care nursing, I got to look after patients, you know, every day on their journey through intensive care. So that was good. Um, and anyway, so I did my master's and things um, when I came back. And actually, after I'd finished my master's, which was roughly about 2000, I actually got phoned up by the university and asked if I'd come and teach uh, into the undergrad nursing degree at Massey University because it was, they were going to have their first group of third years, which was something I'd never, ever planned to do. But um, when I saw, so anyway, I said I was quite sort of taken uh, by it and said, oh, okay. Anyway, so off I went um, and started teaching undergrad nurses, actually. And after a year or so, realized it was around the time I also had children, so knew that it was really quite a good job for um, not having to do shift work. But I also then learned how you could actually sow a seed and grow lots of trees of how things could be done properly. Eh? So I really um, could see the benefit of teaching and um, teaching students just the things that, you know, are important in nursing and that, um, and also having that clinical knowledge, you know, that, that link with um, intensive care. So I worked part-time for a bit in intensive care and then taught as well until it um, got too much. So I was at Massey for eight years and I uh, was going in and out of clinical as well as teaching and I realised that actually I needed to make a decision. I either stayed in the university or um, I would go um, back into clinical. Anyway, it was a rat, so I just, um, and if I was going to stay in the university, I needed to do a PhD. So uh, mm. that was quite a while ago. Anyway, at the time when I was um, making that decision, I was going into intensive care one day a week and working with the nurse educator and we were writing a new grad program because it was around that time that they decided because of their uh, shortage in staffing that they needed to uh, start having a new grad program for uh, ICU. So it was during that time that I was thinking about uh, doing a PhD and I knew I was interested in doing it in relation to long-term ICU patients, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Anyway, so over that year, um, I would go in once a week and there was a patient who was admitted with uh, severe pneumonia, a woman in about her 50s who uh, looked like she was going to die. She was really critically unwell. Uh, she didn't die, but she uh, survived, but had then a lot of uh, lung damage and was um, mm. a lot of problems getting her weaned off the ventilator. I think she'd gone into multi-organ failure as well. Um, anyway, and so I, every week I'd go in and I'd see a difference in what was happening with her illness and um, in her later phase of her illness, you know, she was really depressed and withdrawn and um, she had the myopathy and things and couldn't move uh, and she was really down and people found it really hard looking after her uh, things. Anyway, um, I also got to know her a bit because occasionally I'd do a bit of a, a shift there maybe in the weekend or something for them and I looked after her a few times so she got to recognise me and know me from coming in and out. Anyway, um, uh, I was coming into the hospital to see some students in the uh, step down ward downstairs and anyway I saw her and she lifted her arm up which was a new thing for her and uh, gave me a wave so I went over and had a conversation with her and uh, she was quite she was happy and uh, things and I said to her 
something's different about you. What's happened? And uh, she had a bit of a spark in her eye and she said, I now have hope and I know I can get better. And I thought, oh my goodness, that is my PhD. Because mm. if I was to capture data about what it was like to be a long-term patient at the end, I would never, ever have understood what she had gone through. Mm. And that actually, to understand what it's like to be an ICU patient uh, in there for a long period of time, you actually have to follow their journey. So it was that light bulb moment when I got home and thought about it and thought, ah, that's what I have to do. I have to actually follow the patients throughout their journey because I knew as a nurse that we struggled with patients, you know, at certain times throughout their ICU stay. Um, and I also remember thinking what we're thinking, the patient is probably not thinking the same or a nurse or a doctor on the other side of the room is not thinking how some other people are. And actually, what are the family thinking? And actually, probably everyone is on a different um, wavelength. So that's when how I decided to um, study long-term ICU patients. So, so then I um, started delving into the literature and found uh, lots of fascinating things about long-term ICU patients. And the first thing I actually found, which uh, continues to be a problem, is actually definition. So mm -hmm. what do you discuss? what is an ICU long-term patient, you know, um, the average stay is three days, so anyone over three days, does that make them long, or is it 10 days, or is it 21 days, or is it 28 days, and then the other thing is, how do you um, know if they're going to be a long-term ICU patient, mm. uh, so that's an interesting uh, thing to think about, and you can see um, over my years of thinking that actually as we advance technology and actually those ICU patients are constantly changing that actually the definition of an ICU long-term patient is going to be constantly evolving because often the long-term ICU patients um, are the ones who have come in so critically unwell that they would have um, they look like they're going to die mostly mm -hmm. and um, are the ones then that survive and you know roughly from about day three that actually now they've got a really long journey ahead of them mm -hmm. and so you can see with um, advances constantly with technology yeah. how that's always going to be changing because you never know if that patient's actually going to survive or not so um so, so I guess the question is, are they becoming more common, you know, within ICUs, um, these longer stay patients? Well, potentially, I think they probably are, because also we've got patients now with um, a lot of multiple comorbidities coming into intensive care. Um, and it is predicted that uh, there will be more and more long-term ICU patients. And then if you look at the international literature too, though, about long-term ICU patients, um, depending on who gets into intensive care and... Um, mm you know, where, how far treatment goes or, you know, that different level of when care is withdrawn um, also determines. So if you look at New Zealand, uh, you know, the amount of ICU beds we have per head of capita, which is really small then compared to America. So New Zealand has roughly 5% of their ICU 5% um, of their ICU patients are long-term patients. But mm -hmm. if you look at the literature for uh, America and that they have 25 to 30% of those patients. But, um, you know, the, uh, the amount of bed days that those patients consume is, um, you, you know, humongous, really. So um, it's really quite an interesting 
uh, thing to think about. So it is quite mm. complex, actually. So then when you're looking for literature about long-term patients, it's actually quite complicated because then you're looking at, um, you know, well, how many uh, beds do they have per do you have per head of capita, which is there all going to be about the ICU resourcing, who uh, mm. gets in that care rationing, things like that. So um, it is a complex thing, uh, just that definition. So that was the first thing I found when I was actually uh, going through mm. the literature. Yeah, then there was a, quite a lot of work done in the um, late uh, 80s, early 90s out of America um, called, you know, I'm a chronically critically ill. And there was a group of uh, nurse researchers who uh, looked in uh, the care. And it was around that time when they had lots of problems with uh, those patients in ICU and um, not having enough beds for them that they actually opened the special care weaning units. So uh, those special care weaning units were actually nurse led. Um, mm. and, um, and you can see actually now in intensive care in New Zealand how those clinical nurse specialists and that nurse-led uh, type weaning things for those patients are um, important and some you know intensive cares around New Zealand are actually have got those uh, clinical nurse specialists looking at the weaning and things for those patients um, mm. which is quite a good uh, advanced role for nurses in intensive care looking at um, care for those patients. Yeah, so anyway, so my study um, looked at, uh, I, so I wanted to capture the journey. So I knew that roughly I needed to see if they survived their initial stay and then had uh, lots of potential organs that were down and needing support. So I recruited patients from day seven to day 10 via the uh, next of kin with proxy consent uh, that when the patient was um, eventually well enough that they would agree that um, I could keep all the data and use it mm -hmm. for their study. So I uh, followed the patient through their stay. So from day 10, I started a visiting intensive care, um, observing for a couple of days each week, um, having interviews with the nurses and uh, doctors, healthcare professionals who were looking after the patients. Um, but also had uh, collected data from the family who were visiting so um, and collected data with them over time. Um, so I think that's a really interesting aspect because, um, and I've discussed this with some other people as well, you know, that the family are often kind of the forgotten victims of the whole process yeah. of going through ICU, right? Um, what, I guess, what stories did they tell you, but also how did you unearth those stories from them? Uh, so I think uh, I got to know them. Mm -hmm. uh, so they would tell the stories. They also uh, would just come out and so we'd go off and have, you know, a quiet interview somewhere in the back of ICU in one of the meeting rooms. And they'd often just talk about what would happen for the week and who'd said what, et cetera. Um, talk about what the, who the nurses were caring for the patients, what the doctors and things had said. Um, and they often would say at the end, um, oh my gosh, that feels so much better. I haven't actually told anyone all that. So um, I was quite therapeutic and I actually, um, I, they really um, liked seeing me and they liked coming mm -hmm. to talk to me. Uh, they would often text me throughout the week and tell me what was going on. Uh, they also occasionally would ring me because they didn't know what to do about something um, and want some advice and things. Uh, yeah, so, so the, for the family, probably the whole thing throughout was just that whole uncertainty, um, never knowing. So they'd get through that mm -hmm. first phase, 
and then they'd look like they were improving. So, you know, they'd have the patient would have their sedation turned down. The family would be really excited thinking that they were on the mend. And then the, the patient would wake up and they'd be delirious because they've been, you know, um, sedated for 10 days or something. And as they were waking, the patient was delirious. And then there was a whole, oh, no, that's not good. So they were constantly up and down thinking that, oh, is this good? And then when the patient was delirious, they didn't understand if they were going to um, come out of that. And they'd think they made the wrong decision, letting them, um, you know, have all this treatment, et cetera. Um, the other thing is, so... Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to pick up on that. I mean, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Do, do relatives feel this sense of burden that, oh, um, yeah. you know, that decisions should be theirs instead of led by the medical staff or... I think it's just that whole uncertainty that they never know, that they there's constant... Yes, they look like they're getting better and then they come in the next day and they find out they're having another septic episode because, you know, the longer the, the patients went, were in intensive care, they'd have mm -hmm. these uh, complications. So just this constant, they think they're nearly there. And then I think it's just that whole fear of death and mm -hmm. you, they never know for such a long period of time if they're actually going to survive. And then when they do survive and they're heading to the end, how are they actually then going to be? Um, mm -hmm. And then there's that burden of, oh, now that they've actually coming, they're awake and they're living intensive care, they've suddenly got that realisation that they are, the patient has no idea what's happened to them. Mm -hmm. And then the family have to go through that all again. And the family would say, oh, gosh, we're exhausted. And just when I thought it was all over, now I have to relive the whole intensive mm -hmm. care experience for them as they cry and go oh my god I nearly died with mm. them and the, so the family were absolutely exhausted really yeah. and they started to as the patient then got to rehab or coming home and because I was still collecting data just to, through that final phase you would see the family health start to deteriorate so mm. you know they um a couple of the key uh, carers I noticed in, in a couple of the cases were um getting unwell you know someone's diabetes is exacerbated and someone else had some you know other problems and things so just that they were really exhausted Mm. So how can we support families, I guess, while they're in the ICU to kind of help them get out of ICU in the best possible state? Yeah, so I think what's really important for family is um, feeling comfortable. So so the, um, the communication is huge. So the family would come in and so what they do is they're always looking for signs that they're improving. So, you know, family always come in and they say, what's the temperature? How much oxygen are they on? Yeah. And what they're doing is they're actually also checking out the nurse. So the the family would say, there are some nurses that just give you that information and there are others that you just have to work it. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's really tiresome. Um, if a nurse is busy doing some care, it's really important that you just turn around and say, I'm really busy at the moment. I need to concentrate on getting this infusion right. Um, just give me five minutes and then I'll talk to you about the patient. So, because mm -hmm. they just want information. And so they actually, um, they're never going to complain because they don't want to complain because they don't want to upset the nurse because the nurse is looking after their loved one. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. So um, I think realising this, the whole power that the nurse has over them, but actually the family are a really important source of information. So in my study, there were 
two times where the patient developed complications. There was one that the patient had a leaking astomosis in the abdomen, and there was another one that the next day they developed sepsis. Now, because I wasn't right there and collecting stuff at the time, but the family said um, I knew that there was something wrong with them. The abdomen seemed a bit more swollen the day before, and they were a bit restless. So, um, and the other thing with the man, the person who then um, went septic the next day, she said, I knew there was something wrong. He was just agitated um, and he wasn't focusing on me like he had been the day before. Mm -hmm. I just knew it. And so when I went in the next day and the doctor came towards me, I just knew that there was something wrong. So family are really important people for nurses to actually ask. How do they look to you today compared to yesterday? Because when you have a different nurse in the bed space every day, you're actually not going to notice. An abdomen actually looks more swollen than it did the day before. But this yeah. patient actually had been started on nasogastric feeds and found that they had she had a um, leaking astomosis and um, you know was getting a bit septic from the um, from the feeds and things. You know, so um, and and who knows whether that would have been picked up any quicker probably not but actually um it's potentially you know really important to mm. uh, you know ask the family and and for early warning you know out in the wards yeah. now, we know that family so actually family actually have got will um potentially pick up things i really mm. for intensive interesting intensive isn't it yeah, yeah really highly sensitive early warning score <laughs> yeah 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 so um so that was probably um with family and yeah family did find it exhausting sometimes trying to get information out of nurses so um they just want you know information um and they shouldn't have to work hard to get it eh? so um so there were nurses that they felt relaxed with and not another thing that uh, they got to dread over time was the doctor's Whenever they saw a doctor coming, because they were long-term patients, it usually yep. meant that there was some problem. So yep. they often would dread meeting doctors because they thought they were going to come and give them bad news again. So um, and and they did talk about how doctors gave n negative news. The doctors were very negative, which we know that that's doctors have to do that. Doctors have mm -hmm. to say that you know, they've got this percentage of dying, et cetera, et cetera. And the family, when they're just looking for that hope, they often mm. would um, go back to the nurse for the, um, you know, how are they doing today? So they're constantly looking for hope and that something to relieve that uncertainty that they've got. And that's why they're always asking those questions. So mm -hmm. they're always going to ask those questions because they always want to know if that, um, to get rid of that um, feeling of uncertainty all the time, yeah, that constant. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we often talk about or hear people talk about, you know, relatives um, being demanding or shopping around for information and trying mm. to get the best response, but you can understand why, yeah. can't you? Yeah. <laughs> because they just they just want someone to tell them it's going to be all right, and we can't, but they're, so they're constantly just um, asking questions, uh, looking etc so yeah they come in and they have their little um, survey that they do of the patient you know looking at their face seeing it yeah looking at the monitor etc etc and uh, you know they have their nurses that they know oh thank goodness they're on because they're gonna you know um, communicate with me and let me do whatever's important they think is important for the uh, mm. patient mm. yeah really interesting and I guess you know it's as much as changing our thoughts around mm. the roles of 
relatives, Pano, and seeing yeah. them as helpful and yeah. as part of the patient um, yeah. and involving them in the care and day-to-day um, yeah. -day activities surrounding the patient. Yeah, and, and when the patient starts to wake up, you know, the fam that's when the patient actually needs the family more. Mm. And um, some of the nurses would say, they're doing well now, so it's time now that you go and have a rest. And actually, mm. they don't want to rest because, well, they might be exhausted, but they're still not going to go away because the patient really wants them, eh? And mm. it is that time where, you know, the physiological needs of the patient are less, but their psychological needs are mm. huge. And yep. um, and and if they're not looked after well, then potentially, you know, the anxiety the patient gets, et cetera, is just going to prolong their stay out because, you know, mm. you know, anxiety leads to delirium. Um, also anxiety, you know, while they're weaning from the ventilator is going to increase mm. that respiratory work, et cetera. And, you know, there's a bit of literature that talks about patients' experience of being breathless when mm. they're weaning and how there's that pre-president then the the you know the next time the ventilation gets turned down oh am I going to get breathless again etc so it's a really quite a complex um task for the nurse with those long-term patients actually mm -hmm. weaning the patient and keeping them calm and comfortable so that you can have a successful weaning um you know trial so that you know mm -hmm. the next time you can um you know do more etc because um, that physiological fight flight uh, for a patient who's weaning is mm. um, potentially going to really affect that weaning. So yeah. yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Just those long-term sequelae. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. what worries patients when they're in ICU, long-stay patients? Uh, so, so what was interesting to me as an ICU nurse was um, even the patients that had been awake for a long period of time, that actually what's happening in ICU at the time um, is important to the patient right there and now, but actually down the track, they actually can't even hardly remember some of it. Mm -hmm. I was amazed at um, some patients who clearly looked like they were with it and everything who couldn't remember much. And mm -hmm. what I think, um, what I decided or discovered that actually when the patient's really sick, all they can focus on is here and now and me, and they can't worry about anything else. So there were a patient who um, was in a car accident and her daughter died beside her. Now she knew when she was trapped in the car that her daughter was dead, but when she was in ICU and nurses would say she's not grieving, et cetera, um, and when I saw her out in the ward and she still was struggling with mobility and she stuff, she said to me, I know my daughter's dead, but I can't do anything about that now because I just have to focus on myself and I'll do that later. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so what I, with the patients when they're really unwell, they know that they want something and they want it now and it's all about them. And I think that's their um, body is just so focused on their physiological needs that actually mm -hmm. they've got no room much for anything else emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, to deal with so you know uh, nurses will often say the patients are quite demanding and you know you can never get them comfortable and and the patients uh, are often really difficult to look after and their behavior is something that they would never do normally because yeah. they just are not well enough and it's really important the nurses recognize that actually that's where the patient's at and mm -hmm. if they need something they need it now and they're really uncomfortable and they can't wait 10 minutes because 10 minutes to them is just like huge. 
Um, so that's a really important thing, I think, for nurses to um, understand, because I know nurses get really frustrated looking after patients, and they often, you know, you turn them, and then five minutes later, they're uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, on those um, times when those patients are um, going through that difficult period, you know, perhaps sharing the load of, um, you know, letting nurses have time out, perhaps even in that shift day to mm -hmm. go and do something else and then come back in, etc. But um, yeah. Um, and for the patients, you know, 12 hours in a bed space with a patient like that is a long time, but actually for the patient, they've got nowhere to go. So just really important recognising that vulnerability for the patient. Mm -hmm. And um, patients would say, uh, you know, um, they get anxious at handover because they're wondering who's the nurse next coming to look after them. So it's an important thing that you actually perhaps don't think about, eh? That they think, oh, I might have had that nurse before and they're not mm. very good at looking after my psychological needs or when I'm anxious. And mm. uh, that sort of stuff's really important for decreasing delirium and, and uh, problems. So, yeah, so that was um, quite interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting findings. Um, mm. And particularly around, you know, the patient's perspectives of the nurses as much yeah. as the nurses' yeah. perspectives of the patients. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, so patients, you know, going back to intensive care to have a look and uh, absolutely having no recall. Mm. But um, a nurse came up to me and said, I don't know why he asked all that, because we told them that so many times, but they just absolutely can't remember anything so, um, yeah, so often patients that you think, hey, that are taking it all in, et cetera, yep. aren't. And then uh, that whole, when they do get to the ward, trying to figure out what was real and what wasn't, and, mm. you know, those dreams and things that we know for just the whole literature of um, trying to make sense of it, um, mm. don't want to talk about it till they're ready, um, et cetera. Yeah. So the follow-up's really important because when I saw all the patients at home, um, I was amazed at how unprepared they were going home often um, you know you think because they've been in ICU for so long um, they would have had some good rehab but sometimes patients found out you know the day before actually we need the bed you're going to go home tomorrow now mm -hmm. um, so going home and struggling at home with mobility um, and getting readmitted with you know falls um, and problems like that and uh, that real struggle when they got home of just trying to make sense. A lot mm -hmm. of patients um, had some really uh, down, you know, bad times of um, trying to come to terms with what had happened to them and, uh, you know, quite depressed and things when they were home. So, um, which was when my study ended, but I could see from there that actually um, it's really important that we understand what happens when they get home. And actually I've got a... Um, a student, a PhD student, who's actually going to follow long-term patients when they get home over that year to look oh, at their recovery, because we, I imagine it's going to be long and complicated. And, mm. you know, we know that it takes potentially two years for people to get back to their full capacity. So what's happening with those patients at home over that year? Mm. And it's really, you know, a glaring absence probably in the literature. Yeah. You know, we have no idea. Um, and I guess we're a great sort of size country to be able to undertake this sort of research and able to follow up patients. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be really interesting. Mm. Yeah. And I imagine that they're going to have an up and down um, trajectory as well, like um, mm. patients did. Yeah. With um, in my study, 
Yeah, so, so that's so interesting. Other... So in terms of, um, you know, patients' recollections of ICU, we know that it's not great. No. Um, we know that a lot of places, uh, our own unit included, we've started using patient diaries to mm. be able to help support them possibly, although, you know, the evidence around them is fairly mixed. Yeah. Um, yeah. But a lot of patients seem to, I won't say enjoy, but find them very useful yeah. once they feel they're able to look at them. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things, because I got to know uh, the pa about the patient from the family throughout their stay, when I actually looked back at the data and then looked at how the patients were doing at home, there were actually indications of how the patient was going to do, whether they were the type of patient who had their glass half full or their glass mm -hmm. half empty, you know, um, and those indications were there if they had good family support um, and how that actually coped with the uh, adversity throughout their life so uh, although I only did a small group of patients but actually when I look back on the data I thought actually the indications were here that they weren't going to cope well when they got out of ICU with what had happened to them um, mm -hmm. and some didn't do well um, they were really depressed and um, yeah you know and is there much but, literature around that you know in terms of being able to sort of predict no, who's no, yeah no no so I think that will be interesting, which I was talking to Amy, the PhD student about actually will be interesting to see whose recovery goes well, depending on what's in their toolkits, eh? Mm, mm. And how we can best sort of develop those toolkits, I yeah, guess. Yeah. 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 So um the other important thing that I found throughout because I was interested in finding out what the phases were. So I used uh, Corbin and Strauss's trajectory framework, which talks, um, you know, that illness goes in phases and everything. And I did find that uh, the patients had these specific phases. So there was that acute phase. And then what I called the long wavering trajectory was that phase where they were starting to have life support started to be reduced. And um, that's, you know, but it was the phase where they would get lots of complications. Mm. And, you know, they'd get their reoccurring sepsis, um, bleeds, etc. And it was through that phase that um, was really difficult as well for nurses because they would see these patients that, you know, they come back, they've got this open abdomen, they've lost a lot of gut, they've got fistulas, uh, they get septic, they take them back to theatre, they do some small stuff, they say, oh, um, and nurses were saying, you know, what are we doing to this patient? Mm -hmm. They're not going to survive, they've got feces coming out of their fistulas, you know, into the abdomen, into their wound, this is abnormal, uh, and they get quite distressed uh, caring mm -hmm. for these patients, thinking that they were, there was a lot of suffering, and um, the end result was potentially going to be death or actually uh, quite disabled. So um, I think that's a really important thing to think about going forward, and especially as we, you know, are pushing the advances all the time eh, with those mm -hmm. patients that we have those patients that we never know if actually what we're doing to them is the right thing, if they're going to survive or not, um, and the dilemmas that causes the nurses. And I think yeah. that sort of sets up that precedent of, you know, why long-term patients are difficult. Mm. Um, and then so you have that phase where they're difficult and then as, as it progresses then they you know get awake and they're, they're potentially delirious as well all through that phase and then that last phase eh, when they're really demanding mm. and so um, if you look at this stuff about you know compassion um, mm. fatigue and compassion satisfaction if you've got a nurse who's constantly never going back to that bed space to actually see how that patient's improving they're always going to have compassion dis 
satisfaction, aren't they? And they're never yeah. actually going to see the end result of, um, yeah. so, you know, that compassion fatigue um, happens. So um, it's quite an important thing because it's quite complex for uh, nurses, I think, dealing with those patients and just that whole emotional stuff that goes with it. And mm -hmm. because they're not the usual ICU patient of fast-paced, uh, uh, you know, adjust things, do things, see a response, they're well yeah. in a few days and they're gone. So um, it's important to... Um, you know, talk to nurses about that and actually um, having education sessions with nurses about why these patients are actually really different and why they trigger such emotional response for nurses. Mm. Yeah, because I've been surprised. Yeah, um, I've been amazed. I've been amazed when, uh, you know, going around presenting even at conferences about long-term patients and, and a nurse came up to me and said, there's this patient that we had who had Guillain-Barre for so long and whenever I hear his name now, I get a, um, a, a, a negative response because mm. he was so difficult for her to care for that, mm. um, you know, went and not been able to potentially de debrief and deal with all that stuff mm. of how those patients really make you feel. Eh? Because I think for nurses, it's that sense of uh, with the long term patients, because you don't see a great deal of recovery for such a long time that they just think it's this endless, they're never going to get better. And this yeah. helplessness that nurses feel of what are we doing when you're in the bed space day after day and you can't see any change or you just see more complications or whatever happening with the patient. Yeah, so. Yeah, it's interesting because I think we also forget about the ones who do get better yeah. and yeah. leave us <laughs> and, and, and the amazing them. stories. Yeah, yeah, because they, they roll out through the doors into the ward. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you don't often see them no. after that um, no. unless they come back to visit at some point in yeah. the future. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, you don't necessarily, I mean, you know, it's hard work looking after them in the ward, but you don't get the satisfaction of actually seeing them getting up, yeah. having a shower, walking around the ward, getting out the doors, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it would be important probably for nurses to learn the, you know, how the patients also do down the mm -hmm. track and things. So maybe, you know, um, profiling some of those patients and things that, as, you know, part of the education would be um, good for nurses too. Mm -hmm. And I guess how can we um, look after ourselves along the way, looking after long-term long patients, long-stay patients? Yeah, well, I think education is really important and actually units need to realise that actually long-term patients are not the same as other patients and, you know, we, as we're building new intensive care units and things, we need to be advocating for different areas where we actually nurse these patients and look after them because if, if you look at some of those weaning centres in America, they actually have... Um, you know, big rooms that facilitate family presence and they don't stick to the usual ICU ward rounds, you know, um, routines, etc. Um, you know, you have sleep when sleep's important uh, and you promote things like nature. Uh, some of those new units there you see that have got the mm -hmm. balconies and things off them and courtyards that are there for patients and um, that sort of stuff so that they can see outside, that they can get outside, that you can have visitors, that you promote sleep. Um, and you promote that rehab thing as well. So, you know, that um, actually you can start to mobilise patients and, you know, they're doing some exercises and things in bed. Um, 
So I think the care is quite different and you know New Zealand ICUs haven't really set themselves up for those uh, facilities yet I don't think so that's really important as we're designing new units to actually think mm. we need to have a couple of long-term ICU rooms that are away from the rest um, and also for the family because over time uh, the family see all the trauma that's uh, also happening in the unit eh? and um, some of these families are there for a couple of months so and and what's important for families after when they're you know getting into that long term is actually that they've got flexible visiting that they can come and go because the financial strain of mm. uh, coming up to the hospital and now I did some data collection in Auckland and I think I worked out that one family the woman the wife paid a thousand dollars to Wilson parking for parking in Auckland now that's and um, she actually, they needed to move out of their flat because she couldn't afford to maintain mm. that while her husband suddenly stopped working. So, mm. you know, that financial thing. Um, and so when people come up to visit, it's important um, that you uh, that you know when family are likely to visit. And the nurse actually facilitates uh, their planning of the day around um, the family visiting. So they don't actually have to wait because... Um, family actually haven't got the time as time goes on mm. we often don't know the complexity of what's going on at home when you come to visit mm, so that's yeah. is important yeah. I think you know often we have no idea what goes on outside the doors do we no, um, no not at all not at <laughs> who's all who's who what what else is going on at home no, um and, and yeah and when I went to visit, I saw people that I didn't even know existed. So, you know, there was one person who had the sister who couldn't come and visit the whole time the person was in ICU. She was at home, not being able to eat, feeling sick. Um, there was another person who I went to visit and they were coming up to the hospital, but leaving the demented father and a lazy boy home alone who was yeah. immobile, you know. So, you know, if you know that's happening, um, you, you facilitate how you can make visiting easier mm. or you suddenly know that you know if they're in the middle of the unit that a trauma's just come in and you know the unit's really busy and there's potentially not going to be any visiting for a bit that you would ring them and say hey just to let you know you know we've got this happening in the unit today maybe come at this time or um, things like that. Mm, Another thing that was important for the patients um, in that final stage when they're awake was having a plan so, um, you know, having a whiteboard at the end of the bed, um, what today is, who's their nurse, and what's the plan, and having a little goal that the patient works towards so that, you know, the first time you got them out of bed, oh, we got you out of bed today, you did so well, you managed to sit by yourself, you know, and actually mm -hmm. celebrating, because yeah. uh, those little steps are the what gives that patient that hope, ah, I've done that, so tomorrow mm -hmm. we're going to aim for this, maybe we'll have a shower or some little thing that the patient can do that they've got to look forward to so yeah yeah and I guess as hard as it is for us to see forwards progress for our patients sometimes it must be even harder for patients to yeah. notice that they are gaining yeah yeah yep. and another thing that was important for those patients just in that phase because you know often uh, as they're awake you know we're doing so much to them they have physio it causes a lot of pain then you've got some big abdomen dressing or something that needs doing that you actually then stop and go actually now the patient needs something nice because because um, what happens as the day wears on, the patient has less and less patience because they're tired and their tolerance goes down and they actually start to lose the plot. So actually, you know, before you get to that stage, so go, so physio's coming and it's going to hurt 
and uh, then they're going to have half an hour rest, okay, and then we're going to have to do the dressing, um, and then we're going to leave them alone because they're sick of us touching them and they just need time out. Yeah. And actually, they're just like a, um, a child who actually now needs to have a sleep. So, you know, yeah. we talk about that day-night cycle and it's important, but actually for an ICU patient who's really exhausted and unwell, um, it's, a, it's too much to expect them to stay awake all day. You, you find that, say, maybe at one o'clock to two o'clock, you're going to do everything you can to completely quiet the area, darken it, and let them have a whole hour of no one touching them, and they have some sleep to get, mm -hmm. them get ready for the next, you know, the physio in the afternoon or something. Because by the time they would got, because when that didn't happen, by the time it got to about four or five, six o'clock, the patient were begging beside themselves, mm -hmm. leave me alone. And they were getting really, you know, stroppy and had enough. And, you mm -hmm. know, um, they'd start writhing the bed and things. So just that whole time out's really important for patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you can imagine oh, that touch, touch, touch. They just yeah. get sick of being touched. And the noise as well, you know, it's not a quiet environment, is it? And yeah. that's why it's really important that we advocate to have side rooms, nice side rooms for those patients, so we can shut the door, we can darken it, you know, and we can do whatever is important for them. Mm. Um, and finding out who they are, right? what's important to them. Is it that they have all their mates come in and they watch a rugby game together or they, you know, listen to some classical music or something. So, mm -hmm. and that you plan that into their day. This is the fun thing we're going to do now. Mm. Yeah, a bit of work to do there. Yeah, yeah, but there's no reason why it can't be done. It's just um, thinking, right? These patients are long term. We now need to have a different plan um, and have a group of people actually working mm. and having uh, weekly meetings about the patients and um, getting together and planning how you'll get, especially in that final. Uh, when they're awake phase, eh? Mm. It's interesting. We, I was just talking about this with someone in the last um, couple of days in terms of multidisciplinary meetings and asking whether they had ever considered having the patients at the meetings mm. um, as well, or the, you know, or the meetings at the patient's bedside mm. uh, rather than away in the meeting yeah. room. And I don't know if you've had any experience with that at all. No, I have heard about... Um, I know that, you know, some units have uh, patients, uh, family present during the ward rounds, et cetera, right. um, yeah. which, you know, why not? Because um, mm. they are part of it. But, yeah, no, I haven't actually. But I don't see why you wouldn't do that, eh? Well, it's interesting, you know, with long-stay patients who mm. are awake and you're yeah. wanting them to be involved in their care and, mm. and understand what's going on, um, you know, maybe it's a an interesting concept um, yeah it is an interesting concept I do remember thinking at one stage though about you know when you're asking the patient do they want any more treatment and they say no um, all the patients that had enough then and actually retrospectively they would look back and say no that's I would, wouldn't say that now I did ethically think mm, it, it rung some bells for me that I'd never probably thought of before mm -hmm. that actually a lot of patients have had enough when they're in intensive care and asking yeah. if they want to continue. Um, probably they don't because they've had enough. But actually, when they get through that little phase, the next phase, they actually do want to continue. Like that woman, I now have hope because she could realise yeah. she was suddenly getting better. Yeah. See? And um, yeah, so that that was a little bit of an, that moment when I sort of raised a few ethical 
things for me that I'd, uh, you know, things I'd seen over the many years of being an ICU mm -hmm. nurse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, actually, they might have thought differently two months down the track. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And what about once um, patients are at home in terms of um, support groups or, you know, is there anything much around in this country? Not that I know. No, of, no, 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 no yeah. there isn't, which would be a good thing to get going, wouldn't it? Mm. Mm, not that isn't I know of, no. Another project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But because there's a lot in the UK, eh? you see on Twitter and that with, um, and I notice people, um, yeah, patients going, oh, I, if I'd only known this when I was in intensive mm -hmm. care, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I guess now with, um, you know, more readily available devices um, that patients can use in the ICU, and we've certainly yeah. seen this, you know, with the whole pandemic and oh, yeah. the necessity to use um, devices that, you know, mm. that there might be more scope. Um, yeah, to, to do things. Do things, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Just need the time and energy now. I know. I know, there's so much work to do. Um, I think Amy's study will be interesting, looking at what mm -hmm. happens when they get home. Yeah. yeah. So that will be exciting. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, like we sort of alluded to earlier on, we have no idea what happens once they go home no. uh, or once they're through the ICU doors. And so finding out about how life continues yeah. um, and the costs, yeah. um, whether they're financial or socioeconomic, um, involved in having been an ICU survivor yeah. will be hugely valuable. Yeah, yeah. I think um, also with the patient's um, dreams and things, um, it appeared that the patients who had a bit of a, had had a hard life or had a bit of a negative attitude seemed to have some quite horrendous dreams and experiences compared to mm. the, the patients, you know, there was one patient who was very... Um, um, a Christian woman who was very involved in the church and she, her ICU experience, although they weren't pleasant, but she actually spent a lot of time in her dreams having godly experiences that she could tell me about and, you know, talking to God and seeing God and having these sort of out-of-body experiences, which um, I thought was really interesting um, for the different types of personalities people were. Mm -hmm which um, you wonder if it would be interesting to really study um, in detail person's makeup and what that does to their experience mm. and how she, her, her way of dealing with ICU was she'd say, I'd see them coming and I'd just close my eyes and go to my God. And um, that's how she got through it. And she told amazing stories of dreaming of her daughter as a, uh, famous concert pianist, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and while she was in ICU, they were playing classical music to her, you see, which obviously sent yeah. her off into these nice little dreams. And that's what they knew yeah. she liked, which I thought was really interesting because the patients that were quite negative, they talked about, you know, being in a war zone and um, et cetera. So, mm. yeah, mm. It, was, um, it was, it would be interesting to, be able to do a comparison of patients personalities and what type of dreams and how they experience ICU actually yeah yeah, yeah. interesting because you know like you say depending on their personalities um how they actually get through the whole experience yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and the same for their families I'm guessing yeah. too yeah yeah mm. yeah 
Well, I mean, that's been fascinating. And I think, um, you know, so incredibly helpful to be able to talk mm. to nurses in particular, but also our yeah. medical colleagues mm. <laughs> around what patients experience when they are in the ICU. Yeah, yeah. And the medical colleagues had a lot to say. Eh? And their, their thing was, because um, I did talk to a number of doctors, was always, you know, everything used to once be black and white, but actually we're now in the grey zone, mm. meaning, you know, we've got this advanced technology we've got these patients with all these comorbidities and just this whole um should you shouldn't you um mm. thing so the doctors did talk about that that you um just never know and yeah always navigating and trying to work out if you're doing the right thing um for those patients especially in that complex phase when they were having you know often the complications and things that follow for those mm. uh, really critically ill patients say eh, that then have more and more complications as they Mm. go down the uh, journey mm. yeah I think like you, you know you were talking about before the the moral distress that it causes mm. clinicians um, at the bedside um, can't be underestimated and, no, no. and I guess how we sort of protect ourselves from that um, yeah. Or, re yeah. or reconcile ourselves with that yeah 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 and so I think that's important you know those um, what are they called swash I can't remember what they're called of you, those clinics where you go and talk about, you know, how you've been feeling looking mm. after this patient, which they do a bit of a debrief with the team, which I think um, would be good to talk about and how people are yeah. feeling, eh? especially after some complex cases and that that you have mm -hmm. um, when they leave their unit and things. And, you yeah. know, for um, areas where they have uh, long-term patients that are getting disfigured, you know, such as, um, you know, in units where they've got the burns patients or, mm. you know, those... Um, those big uh, gut surgeries and things that mm -hmm. go wrong and that, um, they're probably really important things to um, be able to debrief about, eh? About how yeah, you feel and what you've yeah. yeah, interesting. You know, we sort of tend to think of debriefing as those um, kind of major incidents yeah. um, and often, you know, really terrible death or a terrible resuscitation attempt or, um, but we probably don't think of them in terms of our long-stay patients and the effect no. that they have on us. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and the family, because, you know, not all patients who are going to be long stay are from a family that are, um, you know, easy to work with. And actually, it's important mm -hmm. that you um, talk about all the things that actually cause little bits of distress over time, because that's what actually burns people out, isn't it? Yeah. So it's mm -hmm. actually recognising and talking about that. Mm -hmm. And again, it's all good learning for the next one, right? Yeah, it's that slow wear and tear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably the long term uh, patient, because that is a slow and yeah, it's up and down and all over the place. So, Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Some awesome insights there. I really enjoyed hearing some of Claire's experiences and research into understanding what it is like to be a long-term ICU patient and how we should follow them through their journey. Two things also that really stuck out for me were relatives finding it exhausting getting information from nurses and how they dreaded seeing doctors approaching them. A couple of things to really think about there. Thank you for joining us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome, and thanks for joining us. If you are a re returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you are enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success. Mm -hmm.